Check my statistics If we talking about go, You gotta give me a mention This is rational hour If we being realistic This is rational They said I couldn't do it But I did it work Ethic like mom But you know that boy is a problem Tell me when to get him Then I got him This is rational hour I'm just keeping it a honey This is rational hour Everything you doing I done done it Welcome to the Rational Hour with Ryan, where we talk sports. I have a very special guest in the building, Mr. Jim Trotter. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for coming on, Mr. Trotter. Um, Mr. Trotter is one of the best in the business when it comes to reporting, writing, storytelling. He's worked for some of the largest publications out there, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, uh, notably now, he's working with the NFL.com, the NFL Network. He's uh, an advocate on most most shows right now. You can catch him on Rich Eisen, Dan Patrick, uh, Tim Rome. Um, just, again, the best in the business, man. I'm truly honored to have you on. No, it's my pleasure, man. Happy to be here. Now, Mr. Trotter, uh, you are a Howard graduate, Kathy Hughes School of Communication, how implement was that in your career? Was that something that you feel the foundation of where your career started? Oh, absolutely. It wasn't just the school of C, it was just Howard in general. You know, um, having grown up attending a predominantly white high school, um, I, I just, you know, neither of my parents graduated from high school. So when I decided to go to college, um, I had never been educated on historically black colleges and universities. And my senior year of high school, our black student union was having a state convention. It actually happened to be on the UCLA campus. And one of the forums during that um, uh, convention was historically black colleges and universities. And so as the panel's up there talking, you know, Howard was one of the schools represented. And I, it just something clicked where it was like, that's where I want to go. And so I applied. Now, mind you, we're in the spring of my senior year, and I applied, and I got accepted, but I didn't have the money to go. So I spent two years, um, you know, saving my money while going to um, a state university here in California. And as soon as I got some of those G GEs out of the way and some money saved, I transferred back to Howard. And um, it's funny, you can step on campus, or at least for me, and I just knew it was where I was meant to be. And I found it to be such an empowering um, place and such a nurturing place and such a challenging place. And, you know, unlike where when I was at that, that convention and I'm sitting in a lecture hall that has like 500 seats, you know, at Howard, I felt like I was more than just a number. And, um, and so everything that happened there without question was was part of the foundation for me being where I'm at today. Howard University is a very prestige university. My sister was a, a student there. She's an alumni and um, uh, she just speaks volumes of it. And there's so many great alumni along with yourself. You currently have a podcast, uh, Huddle and Flow, with your co-host Steve Weiss, who's another Howard alum. There's so many great alums and, from and, Howard University. And our producer is a Howard grad. So that's why we oh, call and, it and the Howard Mod. The three of us, you know, just, just doing our thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, I didn't realize how many great uh, Gus Johnson, Stan Verrett. Uh, how many guys do you work with, notably from Howard, in, in, in your networking business? Oh, Howard is everywhere. I mean, even behind the scenes, we have folks. Um, you know, even at NFL Network, one of our producers is is um, Aisha Cheney, extremely talented, mm. bright. She's a Howard grad. Um, like I say, you've got Steve, Thomas Warren, and myself doing the huddle and flow. You can go out into the community. We've got. Howard alums who are covering the Bengals, who are covering the Falcons. Um, you know, Therese Paler, who recently passed away, you know, rest in peace. 
Uh, he was a Howard grad. They're just, we're everywhere. I, I would put our alums in terms of sports journalism up against anyone. And I just feel that strongly about it. And um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. We're, we're out there. We represent. And it's part of the reason when you see us do our podcast that we will have um, Howard memorabilia in our screenshots and whatnot because we want young black aspiring sports writers sports casters to know everything is possible and where we come from and so we make a point of of, of, you know um, showing our support for our university because I I think all of us can say that we likely wouldn't be where we are without it yeah it's I didn't realize uh, doing my research how big uh, alumni is in the communication uh, department with the university. And I, I, I agree with you. I definitely would put them up against some of the, I know Syracuse get a lot of mention as far as some of the great uh, broadcasters and, and journalists in the field. Um, no question. Speaking Syracuse, of which. Syracuse has a talented, um, prestigious school. You know, Missouri in terms of print journalism is strong. Uh, but again, I, I put Howard right up there with any of them. Definitely. Now, Mr. Trotter, you work extensively with journalism and writing. Uh, I know you got your start with the Tacoma Morning Tribune no. and the San Diego Union Tribune. Is that correct? No, actually, I started right out of college at a small paper in Michigan called the Muskegon Chronicle. I had never heard of Muskegon, uh-huh. Michigan. And um, uh-huh. it was a 50,000 circulation paper. And we did, you know, primarily uh, high schools and we had an international hockey league team, minor league hockey team that we covered as well. But, you know, the way I kind of got started in this thing was I was a broadcast journalism major and my senior year, I decided that's not the route I wanted to go. I didn't like the fact that um, I was going to be judged on how I looked or how I sounded. I wanted to be judged just exclusively on the quality of my work. And so I decided then that I wanted to go the print route, but most of my training obviously had been in broadcast. So um, at that point we had, you know, uh, a communications fair at Howard where every winter uh, employers from around the country and the media um, realm would come in and interview students for potential internships or even jobs. And so when I was interviewed, I had two print interviews and one was with the Cleveland Plain Dealer and one was with the Muskegon Chronicle. And the Cleveland Plain Dealer offered me a six month internship, which they said could turn into a full-time position. And the Muskegon Chronicle offered me a full-time position. Well, I'm, I'm kind of conservative by nature and I wanted to go someplace where I could learn knowing that I still had a lot to learn about the print game. And so I chose to go to Muskegon, which was the best thing for me. And, you know, after 10 months, I wanted to get back west and went to Tacoma, Washington. And then after just under two years, wound up down in San Diego, where I spent 18 years before moving on. Yeah, so you left Howard in 86. And from there, you went to uh, Michigan? Yes. Okay. Wow. So I didn't realize that. So then your first, when you first got to Tacoma was in which year? 87. It would have been, um, what would that have been, March or April of 87, somewhere in there. Okay. And I know you worked with uh, the San Diego Union Tribune for 18 years. Yes. And you had a chance to work uh, with just a lot of great athletes during that time uh, with the Chargers. Um, I know your book, I really uh, got a lot of good insight from your book to, with covering Junior Seau. Uh, the life and death of a football icon. Yeah, thank you. What was it like when you first met Junior Seau? Oh, man, you have to understand, Junior was, he was a San Diego County native, so he's homegrown, went to college right up the road at USC. Um, he was like a demigod here in, in San Diego and gets to come home and play for his hometown team, the one that he grew up idolizing. And so I'll never forget the first time I actually met him they had, I had been covering the NBA, um, you know, in San Diego, obviously there's no NBA team. So we would cover uh, the LA teams a lot, their home games and then the playoffs. So I had been covering the NBA for a year and I was really enjoying it. And they came to me and said they wanted me to be the, um, 
the backup beat writer on the Chargers. And initially I said, I don't want to, that I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And some people talked to me and said, no, you really need to make this move. And so I did. And the first day was the off season. I walked into the locker room and the team, you know, had guys would go there to do some off season training. And it's a little different than it is today. It's not like it was mandatory. Um, so to speak. And um, I walk in the locker room, across the locker room, I see Junior getting ready to walk into the training room. And he turns around, he sees me, and he calls me over, and he says, oh, you're the new guy, right? I'm like, yeah, and I introduce myself, and he introduces himself to me as if I didn't know who he was. And so we talked for a little while, and, and then he said, look, if you ever need anything, you call me and take my number. And, you know, I thought he was punking me at that point. I thought this was some kind of joke or a trick. And I'm the new guy, and, and here's Junior Seau, who, you know, everybody loved, but for him to just say, give, he's gonna give me his number without even knowing me. So I waited a couple of weeks and decided to try the number. I didn't want to try it right away and, and look desperate or something. And a couple of weeks later, I tried it, something had happened, and I'm figuring I'm gonna get Domino's pizza or something. And, and it was actually his number. And he called me back and we talked and that started the relationship where um, more than any other person I've ever covered or maybe even in this business who helped me get to where I am today, it was him because what he did is every, you know, we, we got to be tight and everybody thought that he would feed me information. He never did, that wasn't his style. He protected the team, he protected his teammates. He didn't give up that kind of inside information. What he did for me is he helped me, a newcomer to the NFL, understand the culture of the NFL, to understand the culture of a locker room um, and what goes into being a professional football player. And that may sound kind of silly, like, you know, we watch the game so we know, but we really don't. And I'll give you an example. You know, I'm early on the beat. Um, the Chargers have signed a cornerback to a big money deal in free agency. So we get to training camp and I'm watching this free agent and he just looks terrible. I mean, he can't make a play out there. He's being beaten all the time. And I'm getting ready to write a story talking about, man, they really blew it with this signing. And Junior, I go to Junior as the leader of the team to talk to him about it. And he said, whoa, 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 pump your brakes. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And he said, you have to understand that veteran players use training camp to work on their weaknesses. They're not trying to look good. The things that they're strong at, they can already do that, so why work on that in camp? You want to try and eliminate your deficiencies. Long story short, that player, his name was Ryan McNeil. He went out that year and led the league in interceptions. So imagine how silly I would have looked if I had written that story. Um, and then this guy goes out and leads the league in interceptions. So it was those kind of things that were so instrumental in terms of Junior helping me get to where I am today. And I still say that to this day, always pay my respect to him that if not for him i'm not sure i'd be sitting in the chair i am today yeah junior is such a great you know just legend uh you know of, of the game and just iconic figure in, you know, in football and in california and just you know, everywhere man everyone knows the name who was junior say out to you and what type of man was he Oh, Junior to me, like I said, he was a mentor. You know, it's funny to call someone that you cover a mentor, but he was a mentor because because he taught me. You know, there were a lot of things I didn't know, and and he would help me to understand it, you know. Um, I'll never forget there was an editor one time I had made a mistake, and they caught the mistake on the desk, and I felt really um, embarrassed by it. And he said, it's better to look foolish in front of one than to look foolish in front of hundreds of thousands. And, and in some ways, that's what Junior was for me when it comes to beat writing. I could ask him things that would be foolish um, to someone of his stature or someone who plays the game. And yet, um, he would point me in the right direction so that I didn't look foolish to hundreds of thousands. And that's what Junior was. He just, you know, there are individuals who have that special quality that no matter who they are speaking to, they make that person feel as if that person is their best friend and has always been their best friend. And Junior is one of those people who had that quality. It didn't matter if he was meeting you for the first time. It didn't matter. 
that you know you were never going to see him again he just had that quality of connecting with people and that's why even today i will have players that he competed against and whatnot you know when his name comes up and they will say to me man i miss buddy you know and 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 it's true you do miss him because he was such a presence and such a figure and the one thing that i've always hoped in terms of finding something um, that we can take away from his death to help others is the importance of, of mental health. And if you are struggling, showing that it's okay to ask for help, that that's not a, a weakness, it's actually a strength. And I'm hoping that, that his death taught that to, to people out there, particularly players and former players, that you know you don't have to be the strong man all the time. You can ask for help, it's okay. Absolutely. Um, now, knowing the situation with uh, Junior Seau, there's so many documentaries that I've seen covering his life and just uh, the things that he's accomplished. Did you see any of the signs of Junior suffering from any depression or any mental health? No, because that's the thing. Um, I didn't hang out with Junior away from, from the field. You know, the only time I really saw him um, away from the field was if he was having a charity event that I would go to or if maybe I went by his restaurant and he was there. That's, I, know, I know people think because we were close in that way that we hung out. We didn't. You know, Junior liked to party. I don't party. Junior drank. I don't drink. Um, so there was really no reason for me to be out and about with him. And, um, and I wasn't. So I never saw anything during the incident where he drove off the side of the cliff. Um, they, he had a charity event shortly after that. And when I saw him, you know, I said to him, is everything okay? Are you all right? And he said, yeah, I just fell asleep. He goes, I'm all good, you know, but so I, I, I had no, no idea. Um, but in doing the book, there were clear signs that there were problems. Um, but I didn't know it at the time. And what were some of those signs? Oh, the excessive partying, the excessive drinking, there were financial struggles, um, there was the gambling. Uh, there also were signs that CTE, um, in terms of mood swings and aggressiveness, those sorts of things, there were stories of that. So all these things I learned about really after his death when I started researching, um, doing research for the book. and. It just kind of blew me away because I, I just, I had no idea. Yeah, it's, you know, Mr. Trotter, it's such a big thing now, you know, compared to what it was in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Um, do you feel the NFL was doing enough for CTE and, and helping protect players? Well, I, I think, look, the one thing we have to say and always acknowledge is that the NFL um, isn't a physical sport it's a collision sport it's a violent sport and there are inherent danger dangers in the game if you're going to play it the thing i think that's positive now is everybody knows those dangers it's not like you know when junior played and and, and decades before that where the dangers of, of of concussions weren't known or they were hidden from the players everything is out on the table now so players are making informed decisions about whether or not they feel it's in their best interest to um, put themselves at risk in that way. So I'm not sure how much more the league can do to make the game safer other than, you know, playing flag football at this point. Um, they've tried to eliminate the head from the game, which is something you will never completely do, but it's something that they and the Players Association have, have are striving to do. So that's a tough question for me excuse me to answer because yeah. I don't know that you can ever make the game completely safe. Right, right. It's just a physical sport. No, no, no. And it's, it's a gladiator it's sport. A and it's... sport. Let me tell you, let me say this to you. Yeah. Like, I watched yeah. the game growing up on TV like everyone else and, and always marveled at the physicality and whatnot. But it was not until I actually stood on a sideline during training camp which in no way resembles the speed of an actual regular season game and definitely does not res resemble the speed of a playoff game. But even during training camp, when you are on the sideline, 
and you see the size of these men and the speed at which they move and then the collisions when you hear those sounds from the sideline they're sounds you never forget and that's when you really start to have an appreciation for just how dangerous the game is and 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 how vicious it is really um if if people could watch it from there they would have an even greater appreciation for what these players put themselves through yes i know i've seen some and that's one thing i've gotten a lot from different players and just guys that i know that have played and the level that i played and it's it's the speed of the game changes oh. at every level and at the pro level it's it's ridiculous man i mean it, you are definitely right it's like car crashes going Think on about, basically. i mean we're talking about junior was what 63 255 something like that you know and now we, we we have linebackers who are in the 270 range and they're running four threes four fours I mean, now imagine running a 4344 at 270 into another person who's running a 4344 at 270 or more. It's just the body wasn't built for that, you know? So it's, yeah, yeah. Man, it's, it's, it, it is scary. I, you know, there was a, there's one, and I write about this in the book, one play that I will never, ever forget. And it was in training camp, and it was um, a run isolation drill. And the fullback was Fred McCrary. The linebacker was Junior. And the coaches, offensive coaches were upset because the defense had been dominating during that camp practice. The energy level wasn't high. So to liven it up, they said, we're going to a live run drill and we're going to run ISO. And they ran it to the right behind the guard. And Fred McCrary came through the hole, the A-gap, and Junior came through the A-gap. And when they collided, it left a three-inch split in the crown of Fred McCrary's helmet. And the sound of that collision can be heard football fields away. It is something I will never forget. And both of them, both of them suffered head injuries from that to the point where even six months later, Fred McCrary is laying in bed, holding on to the side of the bed as the room spins. And it's 2 a.m. and his wife is trying to get him to go to the emergency room to get treated. And he's saying, I can't because I might lose my job. You know, that's what, those are the kind of things people don't really realize that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an amazing story, Mr. Trotter. I remember where he was a thumper, just like the other fullback, the Chargers had a Lorenzo Neal. Um, mm-hmm. Lorenzo Neal. Yeah, they had some, some great uh, lead backs, even back in the day. And Troll Means was more of a running back, but he was a big mm-hmm. boy. Now you covered Colin Kaepernick I mean that guy has been in the media for the last you know eight years strong it's funny because from 2016 to 2020 many people uh, will focus more on not the meaning of him kneeling and they would kind of protest why Colin was taking a knee often they would kind of twist it to where it was against the military and patriotism Anything but racial Not equality. Often, reg- regularly. Does the NFL? Regularly. Regularly. Uh, did do you feel the NFL owes Colin an apology now? And should they? Why is he not getting a second chance in the league? Um, I think it's because of the position that he took. Uh, I think there's the fear that he was not going to change. And um, do I think the NFL owes him an apology? Absolutely. Um, more than anything, I think it owes him an opportunity to have a job. Um, because even to this day, I would I would doubt that there are 62 quarterbacks who are better than he is, or even 32 who are better. And by 64, I mean, I think I said 62, I meant 64. 64 meaning um, starters and their, their um, backup. Um, it's, it's, to me, it really is a travesty what happened to Colin, because at the end of the day, what I always say is, can we be in agreement that police shooting and killing unarmed black men and women is wrong? Can we just agree on that fundamentally? And if we can agree, agree on that fundamentally, then there should not have been this uproar about what Colin Kaepernick was doing. So, um, I, I, you know, but look, they always say God has a plan and maybe the plan was for him to be in this position that he's in where he's raising more awareness 
even by being out of the league than maybe he would have if he were in it. Um, I don't know, but I just think it's unfortunate. You know, it is. And you're right. Maybe he was, you know, like you said, God has a plan for him to be that voice, that advocate for racial equality. And uh, he's done a great job with that, trying to bridge the gap. And and he's kind of become this iconic figure because of what he's done in raising awareness. No question. Now, Mr. Trotter, uh, I, I just want to talk to you about the the coaching development in the NFL. Uh, it's just interesting to me the diversity with the coaching. Right now, it's four minority head coaches in the NFL. The NFL is 70% African-American. David Culley with Houston, Brian Flores with Miami, Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh, Ron Rivera in Washington. Uh, what are your thoughts on the lack of diversity in the NFL? Uh, I think it's shameful, <laughs> you know, um, uh, to <laughs> use one word. Look, over the last four hiring cycles, we have had 27 head coaching vacancies. Only three of those head coaching vacancies have gone to a black man. Now, people always say to me, well, owners should be able to hire the most qualified person for the job. And to which I always respond, I agree 100% owners should hire the most capable and qualified person. So having said that, if we were to do blind resumes and on one board I was to put, let's say the resume of Nick Sirianni, who was just hired by the Eagles without his name. And on the other board, I was to put the resume of Jim Caldwell without his name, or even Eric Bieniemy without his name. You tell me which one of those resumes reflects someone who's more capable and qualified to be a head coach in the NFL. And hands down, I would say every person, 100%, would say it's the one with Jim Caldwell or Eric Bieniemy. And so clearly, the most qualified and capable, at least by resume, are not being hired. So there's something wrong there. And I think we have to remember the history of this. The NFL, the, the, the reason the Rooney Rule was created in the early 2000s is because the NFL was going to be sued by the late Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary over discriminatory hiring practices. The fact that black men were not being hired as head coaches in the NFL. So out of that came the Rooney Rule which was intended to slow down the process and hopefully increase the diverse numbers. Well, over the next decade, the numbers increased incrementally to a high of, I think, seven or eight um, black head coaches. And what happened from that point, at least in talking to people um, who have been affected by this, is that the league and the owners got comfortable and said, everything's okay now. And so when minority coaches were being fired, they were not being hired to the point of a couple of years ago, I think we were down to two black head coaches. And there is your problem now. Um, we are at a point where you have to ask yourself if owners really believe that there is a problem and that the most qualified. And look, I could spend all night with you on this because there are so many layers to it. But um, the fundamental issue here when you talk to these minority candidates is that they believe these owners don't want to hire people or I'm sorry let me put it this way that these owners hire people that they are most comfortable with and by that what do we mean people who right. look like them and until we get past that I don't know that anything is ever going to change because look the league office has done just about everything it can do even going so far at one point proposing to bribe teams to hire minority candidates by giving them improved draft positions or extra draft picks. Now that's a joke because from this standpoint, if I am a black coach who is hired, everyone's going to think I got hired because the team got extra draft picks for hiring me or improved draft position. It's like wearing a scarlet letter. And so fortunately the owners tabled that proposal and didn't vote on it. But for me, we all can identify the problem. The issue here is what are the solutions? And one of the solutions I would argue is that number one, there has to be more people of color involved in the interviewing process. Many times when these candidates, minority candidates sit down and do these Zoom interviews, they are looking at a screen and there isn't one person in that on that screen who looks like them. Number two, 
we have to have more representation at the general manager level and the club president level. Why? Because typically before an owner makes a hire, the last voice that he hears is either his club president or his general manager. Well, we all know prior to this last hiring cycle, there were only two black general managers in the NFL and there had only been one black club president in the history, 101 year history of the NFL. So clearly there is work to be done, done there as well. Absolutely, uh, I agree. I just feel there's such a double standard, Mr. Trotter, just with the whole process. Like some of the things through the last couple years, like there was recently, well, I think it was last year, Josh McDaniels took a job and then he decided to back out and call him back out. Uh, Doug Marone accepted a job, turned it down, got another job. I just can't see a black coach getting that same oh, opportunity. Absolutely. Would you agree? I mean, um, look. Jim Caldwell went to a Super Bowl with the Indianapolis Colts. Jim Caldwell joined a Detroit Lions right. team that had made one playoff appearance in the 14 years before he arrived. He took them to three winning seasons in four years. They won at least nine games in three of the four. They went to two playoff appearances in those four years, and he got fired and he can't get a job now as a head coach. So we see retreads, whether it's the North Turners, or um, you pick who you want. Um, uh, Pat Shermer's. I mean, go down the list, these guys who get second opportunities and whatnot. But guys like Jim Caldwell can't get a second opportunity, I mean, a, um, a job right now. And, and Eric Bieniemy can't even get a first opportunity. So, uh, yeah, there are issues. But it, what that speaks yeah. to also is the cronyism that goes on in the NFL and whatnot. And, and agents play a role in that as well, because if you're an agent who has a certain general manager and you also represent these certain coaches, you're going to be pushing your coaches to join up with your general manager. Um, it's a lot. There are a lot of layers in this thing, man, and a lot of tentacles. And yeah, we're fighting it up. Yeah, I, I, I see it. I, I was really shocked with Steve Wilkes one year in Arizona, then they went with Kingsbury. No, that that really See, I thought he thing about that one that got me um, is number one there were I think seven or eight vacancies that year um, Steve was the last coach hired now why is that important because it means that he was not able to put together the staff that he wanted because many of those other coaches who had been hired ahead of him had already picked over the other coaches and gotten who they wanted so to fire him after one year means he never even had an opportunity to implement whatever his plan was. And and that's the, to me, the distressing part. If you fire a coach after one year to me, then you as the general manager should be fired because it means you were way in over your head um, when you made the, if, if indeed you made that recommendation to hire that person, it means you were way in over your head and didn't know what you were doing. Right. I, uh, I really thought he, you know, didn't get his just due. Um, Houston with David Cully and, you know, like you mentioned before with Eric Bieniemy, why is Eric Bieniemy not a head coach in the NFL? I just feel like Andy Reid, a lot of his disciples with Nagy, Peterson. Um, you know, even uh, uh, Peterson uh, and so many guys that are under his tree that have gotten the opportunity after just being offensive coordinator in his system for less years than what Bieniemy has. Why is he not currently a head coach and is Houston making a mistake hiring Cully and just not First keeping Romeo Cornell? First of all, I don't know why um, Eric doesn't have a, a head coaching job. I really don't. Um, and I'm not going to sit up here and give these yeah. reasons that some people give without attaching a name to it because I don't think it's, number one, I don't know that it's accurate based on people I've talked to. And number two, it's just not fair um, when I look at some of the interviews I've seen publicly with uh, Nick Sirianni and Dan Campbell. So um, I don't know why Eric doesn't have a job. And when I talk to Eric, he has not been told why he doesn't have a job. So I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Now, do you feel David Cully is a good hire by Houston? David Cully is one of the nicest men. A lot of people feel. Um, and I had not met him prior to this year, 
and when we had him on our podcast um just a great human being you know and told very human stories the reality is though in my opinion and i've said it publicly so i'm not speaking out of turn i believe he's a seat warmer because the situation in houston is so bad that he's not going to succeed there early on and i believe that basically he was hired to keep the seat warm until they feel josh mccown is ready to be a head coach that's how i view it Interesting. Now, what are your thoughts with Deshaun Watson and this whole allegation, these women coming out of the woodworks, and is he being set up to to have his name being thrown mud on, or is this something you know, that, Ryan, you're not, that um, has to wish? It would be responsible of me to, to speculate because none of us has, have seen the evidence, whatever the evidence may be. So until we get more details, right. none of us knows whether there's any validity to this whether this is a setup, um, all of that, we just don't know. So, you know, as I've said before, if it's true, then Deshaun should pay the consequences for it. If it's not true, somebody else, all of these people who brought allegations to me should be sued for defamation. Um, um, so that's how I feel. I don't know anything, so I can't make a comment on whether, I can't make a comment on it, you know? Yeah, I, I, I just, it seems very strange, just the whole circumstance of how things have been laid out these last couple months with him. And there's so many rumors coming out of Houston Absolutely. with the whole movement of Deshaun. Is that something you think the Houston Texans will eventually do is move him before the draft? Or will you they know, keep him? I, I was convinced and believe that he will be moved at some point. My This was before all of these allegations came out. My question now is, without knowing the facts of, of these allegations um, or the veracity of these allegations, I don't know if another team is going to be willing to do what is necessary to make that deal now. So I don't know at this point. Um, I do know that there were several teams that were willing to move heaven and earth to trade for him if Houston were willing to make that move. I know that for a fact, having spoken to him. Um, so how is this going to play out? I don't know at this point. This legal situation um, has everything up in the air, in my opinion. Here's what I do know. He has basically let it be known he does not want to play for the Texans again. We had Jalen Ramsey on our podcast, who is a close friend of Deshaun's. They are represented by the same agent. When I asked Jalen, how serious is Deshaun about never playing for Houston again? Jalen said, extremely serious. And went so far as to say, he can't ever see Deshaun putting on a Houston Texan uniform again. So there you have a close friend represented by the same agent making a statement like that. Now, you could try and piece it together on whether he got that from Deshaun or whether he's just saying that on his own. Believe whatever you will. Um, because the point that I made to Jalen is players say a lot of things until they start getting hit in the pocketbook. And if Deshaun starts getting fined and those fines add up pretty quickly under the CBA, um, the Texans are going to test his conviction. But as Jalen said to me, he believes Deshaun is extremely serious. Wow. Yeah, it, it's uh, a lot of smoke coming out of Houston. Uh, time will tell what happens with that, but I definitely think he will be moved eventually because it just, it's just a real bad just situation all the way around. It's, it's gotten really ugly. Now, Mr. Trotter, you've been on so many networks and you've been on so many shows. I mean, I've, you can, I've seen you on Dan Patrick, Jim Rome, Rich Eisen. Do you have a favorite show that you love to work uh, with? Which I, one is your favorite? Yeah, no, I probably besides your network, Romy, um, you have to remember Jim Rome basically started down here in San Diego. When I first got here, he was on local radio here. Uh, he would write a column for a, a suburban East County newspaper, I think once a week or something. And so 
I've kind of followed him since then. And as I kind of climbed the ladder and he climbed the ladder, then he started calling, asking me to appear on his show. And I've done his radio show when he had his TV show, was doing that. So um, I have great respect for him. And, um, and we keep it real with each other. So because of that relationship, us knowing each other for a while, if you're asking me all these different shows that I appear on, probably be, be his. Yeah. Jim is uh, the jungle is uh, one of the, the most is kind of the original Dandada of all the shows to me. He, uh, so uh, out here, you know, yeah. I started in Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, and he's had the show. And I'll never forget oh, when yeah. he had um, Jim Everett yeah. on, and that happened with him calling him Chrissy Everett. That's <laughs> just iconic, man. That That's uh, one yeah. of those infamous situations. Well, I think I that mean, really kind of put him on the map. I, I wouldn't say it put him on the map because he was already at ESPN, so he was on the map. Um, but what I would say is, you know, sometimes in this business, we all have those flashes of emotion where maybe if we were given a chance to do it over again, we might do something different. And and I don't know, I've never asked Jim this, but I would think that maybe he would have done that situation differently because um, nobody wins in a situation like that. Neither he nor the player win, and that's what's unfortunate. One question I want to ask you, Mr. Trotter, working in the media, uh, these last couple of years, we spoke on racial injustice and just, you know, being on social media. Uh, there's been so many situations with different reporters like Jamil Hill, Stephen A. Smith. Uh, how hard is it to separate your um, personal life? It can life be hard business? in the sense of sometimes you can't go all in and say what you really want to say the way you want to say it. You can still make your point, but you have to understand that um, you're working for someone else you're representing a company. Um, your thoughts can be your own, but how you say something can be as, as important or impactful as what you say. So um, I think what we do is you, uh, you know, I always have a saying, older, wiser, and you start to learn just how far you can go and how best to navigate certain waters. So the one thing I say to young journalists all the time, you hear people talk about being objective, being objective. Well, in my opinion, there is no such thing as objectivity. What you try and be is fair and you try and be balanced because objectivity, look, we all bring our life experiences to our jobs, whatever it may be. How I see something is based in part on how I grew up and my life experiences. The same for a white reporter who may have grown up in an affluent area, um, not dealing with many minorities, that sort of thing. Um, and I think looking at the Drew Brees situation this past summer with you know him talking about what the anthem or the flag meant to him and then having some of his teammates clap back at him, um, it was eye-opening for him, you know? And he had conversations with many of them, both current and retired, and I think it opened his eyes as to, you know, to see a different perspective, not saying that it changed his opinion on, on what the flag means to him, but maybe it gave him a sense of why others feel differently. So um, that's just a long-winded way of saying to you, look, we're never far from um, who we are as people in our jobs. You know, I'm a black man before I'm a reporter. And, and so I'm always going to have those experiences um, in my mind. And they color who I am. They color how I go about my job, how I view things. And, um, but I also know that I can't just go off on a tangent. Right. That has to be um, something you have to learn, your emotions. Sometimes with Twitter and social media, you know, you get that Twitter finger and guys, you sure. know, have to delete something it. that they got too emotional yeah, about and Twitter, tweeted. I did. You know, and I you see that often. Let okay. something get under my skin. And then again, you get older. So you take the steps necessary. Like now I don't, I don't see these comments because I only see responses from people that I follow. Why? Because I'm not trying to get into back and forth with people who don't want to be rational about things you know it's always funny you see this um whenever you report or make a comment on a team if it's positive 
They're, the team's fans love you, and if it's critical, you're a hater, or you're this, or you're that. Why can't it just be that I'm doing my job and trying to be offer a, a, a critical, you know, um, um, evaluation of a player or a team? I, I don't care who wins or loses. It's, it doesn't affect whether or not I get paid or not. Um, but I'm paid to, to tell my truth, and. So what's the point of me trying to art, trying to debate something with someone who is only going to see it through a, a particular prism? It doesn't make sense. So that's the one thing you realize as you get older, man. Your energy is valuable. Your time is valuable. So protect it. Yes, you have so much invested in your career. You that. don't it's lose just, it off your emotions. Just, it, you have to understand, it affects more than now, just your job. You know, it can affect how you deal with others, how you deal with your family, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things in terms of the move it, mood it puts you in, mm -hmm. in terms of draining you with positive energy you might have for something else. Um, life's too short, man. So I just, there are some people who like that, who can do it. I can't sit around and debate people all day about topics and try and convince them that maybe I'm right or maybe they should view it in a different light. I just can't. I don't, I don't, I don't have that energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, as you get older, you get yeah, wiser absolutely. and you learn to choose your battles wisely. Now, Mr. Trotter, your resume is just a long history of the game. I, I just mind boggled by your just your work your, uh, that you've accomplished. Um, you've worked covering so many different owners and athletes like Al Davis, Jerry Jones, um, you you know, like we mentioned with Junior Seau. Uh, uh, now, who, who is your favorite to cover and what is the latest? I want you to give me a little clarity with uh, Larry Fitzgerald, if you actually are still working with, doing a book with him yeah, or um, if that's something that you book, finished? I would say it was about, 70% done and then Larry decided that you know what it's too early to, to do it he, he's got a, as he says a lot of living to do he's got a lot of other big things that he wants to do and so at this point we put the book on hold um, while he goes on his second career is going to be as big as his first career um, that's the plan so he just felt now it's too early to do the book. So the book is on hold, even though it was 70% done. And we were simply waiting for him to retire so that we could finish it. Um, in terms of, of people that I've covered, I mean, you know, I've always been fascinated by people who, who, who see football for what it is and who are about more than just football you know, who you can talk about life with. One of the guys who, who was fascinating to talk to and I really enjoyed talking to was Ricky Williams. I mean, you could talk to Ricky about all sorts of different stuff and he just had a different view from a lot of other people. I enjoy that. I enjoy talking to people who have a different view than I do, where you can sit down and have a, a, a conversation and egos and attitudes and emotions are taking out of it and hopefully you're both learning from each other um so you know he was one of those he was one of my favorites when it came who to interview I always enjoyed talking to him and there are so many others man right it would be unfair of me to try and pick out one or two you know one of my one of my good friends that I covered you know during my time with the Chargers I always say there were really like three guys who raised me on the Charger beat and it was Junior Seau, Rodney Harrison, and really Terrell Fletcher. And um, I owe those guys a lot. And when I talk to them today, man, I have great respect for them as not just football players, but as men. So, um, yeah, it would be it would be way too many to, to, to try and pick one or two. To narrow, narrow one down. Uh... You know, 2020 was such a tumultuous year, mentally, physically, just all the way around. What are something positives and negatives you took out positives. of 2020? Um, the positive is just getting through it, to be honest with you. Um, 2020 was hard on me. You know, you have to remember, my job, I was traveling, what, you know, a minimum of 30, 35 weeks out of the year. You're in front of different people every week. 
uh, you see them face to face, you're able to tell their stories, and then all of a sudden it just stops. And so literally, I have not gotten on a plane in 13 months now, and have not gotten in front of people face to face, not virtually, face to face, um, and God knows when, you know, almost the same amount of time. And so there was a point there where it really, I find myself in a funk and, you know, I don't know if it was depression or what it was. It was just something where I wasn't right. I didn't feel right. And, and so all I'm doing is like, you know, it's Groundhog Day every day, you know, cause I'm not leaving the house cause you got family members who have underlying conditions. So you don't want to subject them to, to anything or do anything stupid. And so literally all I'm doing is riding a Peloton and doing some, some, you know, um, core work and that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden I realized I've lost 25 pounds and, um, and you're just going through every day. It's like the next day where you don't know what day of the week it is. And you just find yourself saying, okay, I'm going to bed to do what, to get up and do this all over again. It's just weird. So that's why I say for me, 2020, the best thing about 2020 was just getting through it. And now hopefully, um, we're on the other side, you know, the election in November um, was a spark to say, you know, hopefully we have, we'll have some people in charge who take this thing seriously and, and who have some empathy for those who have been affected by it and who are looking to, um, you know, just to make people, to show people that they care, you know, that they matter. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's that for me, 2020 was getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, you were clear and I'm right with you. It was, it was one of those years that we all learned something and kind of got more tight knit with your kids. If you know, the kids and the family, that's kind of one positive that I took from it. And, uh, it's one of those well, things that make you appreciate life, but it definitely made, yeah, you it was definitely one of those years in the rearview mirror more focused on what it is you need individually and so like for me there was a point there even social media wise like on Instagram I I like deleted the account it was like I don't want to see anything work related I don't want to see people I don't know because at one time my account was private then I was talked into making it public and all of a sudden you've got these thousands of people you don't even know and you're giving them a window into your life and I just said you know what I, I'm just not in that space and just deleted the the um, the account and people are like why 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 because it was what I needed you know to help me so you become more focused on what are the things that you need to get through you know a difficult time and for me it was conserving my energy to to make sure it was not going to areas that it didn't need to go to yeah. now one thing before we let you go, I want to get your thoughts on uh, Marty Schottenheimer. I know you covered the Chargers for many years. Uh, he was a great coach, and he, you know, got so many teams that he got so close with Cleveland and, and San Diego. And uh, I thought he did a really good job. One of the underrated coaches in the league. Um, uh, any Marty stories with Marty, uh, and any good memories you can share? Marty was probably the out of all the head coaches I covered, my favorite. Um, it's funny, I was just playing golf last week with two of his former assistant coaches, Cam Cameron, who was his offensive coordinator, and Clarence Shellman, who was his running backs coach, and we were kind of sharing stories about Marty over a round of golf. And um, the thing I loved about Marty um, as a beat writer is that if he respected you and he respected anyone who he felt worked hard and, and you know, let's just say they knew what they were talking about, you could have honest conversations with him where you could say, Marty, you were wrong. Or Marty, you cost the team this game. Those sorts of things. Like he and I had that conversation a couple of times after playoff losses where I said, you know, you got out of character and you did some things that you hadn't done in the past, trying to either answer your critics or to show that you weren't the same, you know, conservative head coach, those sorts of things. And you could have those conversations with them. You might not, you know, the two of you might not agree, 
but um, at the end of the day, you would agree to disagree. And for Marty, the thing that that the thing that I always remember, the story that stands out to me the most between us in terms of our relationship was he had been hired in 2002 and part of his responsibility I knew was to get the media under control which meant getting me under control and so free agency was starting it was a Friday I asked him hey are you guys bringing in anybody um, um, this weekend and he said nope and I said oh so you're telling me I can take the weekend off not have to worry about anything and he said yeah you're good got nothing planned so I take the weekend off And when I wake up Monday morning, there's a press report, I think on Fox or something, that the charges are brought in David Boston and are expected to sign David Boston, who was like the top free agent wide receiver. So I'm a little hot. So I call down to the building and I say to the receptionist, you know, trying to reach Marty and he's not taking the call. So I get in my car and I drive down to the building, which, you know, nobody's there in terms of media because it's off season. I walk into the lobby and I tell the receptionist, I'm going to sit right here until Marty comes down. You can call up and tell him. Five minutes later, he comes down and we go in the back room. And I said, um, I said, you know, Marty, I'm not going to say you lied to me, but I believe you deceived me. And I said, if that's the relationship you want, I'm cool with it. I just need to know the ground rules of this thing. I said, because if that's the relationship we're going to have, I said, from now on, Everything I find out about this team, I write. And I said, I will ask you about it, but I write it. And then I, I listed a few things that I knew that he had no idea I knew that if printed would have created a, a uh, would have created a mess. And I ran down like three or four of them to him. I'll never forget, he looked me in the eye and he said, Jim, how the F did you know that? I said, it doesn't matter how I know. I said, the fact that I know from now on, I write it and I get a comment. <laughs> and from that point forward, we never had that issue again. You know, if he never, I never felt he deceived me. We could always wow. talk about things. Um, and I enjoyed that. You know, um, I, I actually consider Marty a friend. You know, I, I knew wow. he was struggling there. Um, the last few years or whatever and I would call his wife every now and then or talk to Brian his son um, you know it's just one of those things where I actually wish I'd have more time with him when he was a full faculty yeah he was uh, you know from what I read and, and what I observed it seemed like he was a great coach and I was really just I thought he didn't get enough more time as a head coach. And correct me if I'm wrong, he had a great sense. The team, the last year he was with the no, head coach. No, he's 14 and He got fired after a, what, a 12 uh, and 4 season. Yeah. But it was, 14 you know, and two. that it was story something would take I just was shocked that to all of it. But suffice it to say that there had been a years-long battle between him and the general manager, and Marty had just had enough of it. And so he um, he defied the owner. You know, the owner told him he didn't want him bringing in a, his brother as defensive coordinator. And Marty stood his ground and said he wanted his brother. Why would he stand his ground knowing he'd possibly get fired? Because he wanted to get fired. He wanted to get fired so that he could collect the rest of his money and move on. Because that situation just wasn't wasn't tenable. You know, wasn't workable anymore. Really. And. And he did. So, um, it, oh, there's a long, long backstory to it. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Now, he, yeah, that's, that's an interesting story, but that's the inside information that you get. No. Yeah, he, uh, after he left, was it, who came in? Mike Riley or? Oh, North Turner, right. But okay. you have to understand part oh, that's, of that. That's too, amazing. Like, I didn't know that. They went 14 and 2. Maybe, uh, you know, nobody thought they would go 14 and 2. I mean, everyone thought they would be good and have a winning record. But what it did is those 14 victories got Marty to 200, which at the time made him one of only, I think, six head coaches who had 200 victories. Excuse me. And that had always been something, a target. 
for him. And so once he got the 600, I'm sorry, the 200, he was like, why do I want to put myself through this anymore? Dealing with a general manager who doesn't like me, who doesn't talk to me, and just makes it a very difficult working environment. And that also contributed to him deciding it was time to move on.